the Rural Health Voice, Episode 99, American Hospital Association. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How have rural hospitals changed over the years, and what will they look like in the future? John Sublett, Senior Director of Field Engagement at the American Hospital Association, joined me to discuss concerns and possibilities for rural facilities. Well, welcome, John. Thank you for having me. To have you here. Appreciate you being willing to spend your time with the Rural Health Voice. Now, looking at your job, you focus on rural issues at the American Hospital Association. Which interest came first for you, rural or hospital? Well, the coincidence is is that I was um, a student at New York University, which seems congruent with being part of rural, but they got a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to uh, administer the swing bed program. I graduated from NYU and applied for school, applied for work here at the American Hospital Association and was hired as the project director for swing beds back in 1981. And so the coincidence is uh, having attended graduate school at NYU in Manhattan and getting my first job as the swing bed project director for the American Hospital Association. And from that point on, I fell in love with rural because the proximity that we have to the people with whom we work is much closer than than many others in association life experience. And as part of being the underdog, I, I love rooting and playing and being like part of the underdog. And I think uh, that's part of the motivation behind what keeps me involved in rural health. Absolutely. And you are now the Senior Director of Field Engagement at AHA. What does that mean in terms of your day-to-day job? What do you do? So Beth, what that means is I am uh, uh, responsible for member relations for our 1,800 rural hospital members, of which 1,000 are critical access hospitals. So look at it as the national account executive for rural hospitals at the American Hospital Association, where my role is to see that our members are informed and aware and uh, of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And conversely, we have our ear to the rail as to the emerging issues for the rural hospitals in, in, uh, our, com- in our communities and that we're attending to their needs, which as you are aware, can be very unique from one location to the next. So it, it puts me in a position then of being sort of the subject matter expert for rural hospitals at the AHA, as well as a bit of a generalist who can work between advocacy, policy, education, communications, and relating with the members themselves at a point where they are. And you've had a long career with AHA. How has the rural hospital environment changed over the years in terms of the, the services they provide and how they are managed? Rural hospitals themselves have become much more sophisticated over the years in terms of the services they provide and the means by which they do it. I think the most telling statistic is how much volume is present is provided outpatient versus inpatient and how it's gone from 80% inpatient at, at one point in time to now, which is really closer to 80% outpatient. 
in terms of the service delivery for our, our acute care hospitals. Uh, that speaks to the technology in terms of delivering care, uh, the clinical background of the folks that, that, that deliver care, the delivery models and payment models that are all involved. And that change is significant. Uh, I think in terms of the issues with which I deal, you know, they're very much the same. You're still talking about payment. You're still talking about workforce. Uh, you're talking about quality and outreach and social drivers. You're talking about the demographics of rural communities, all of which have, have remained relatively consistent. But the environment in which hospitals are providing care has changed dramatically. One of the things that we see here in Virginia is that only one of our small rural hospitals is still an independent facility, and everyone else is part of a larger healthcare system. How has that changed how hospitals operate for good, for bad, for something else? That's actually a really interesting conversation, mergers, affiliations, and acquisitions. And it's different in the rural world than it would be perhaps outside of that, that space. And let me explain. From 2016 to present, 51% more or less of rural hospitals have had some sort of affiliation, formal affiliation. But that number hasn't changed dramatically in, in the past seven or eight years, which leads one to believe that the affiliations and, and mergers that were going to occur have largely taken place in the rural space, um, certainly post-COVID, with the potential of additional mergers and acquisitions taking place after the public health emergency. But you don't see any kind of volatility there like you see in other segments of, of our industry. And a lot of that goes to, I think, ownership. When you look at the ownership of rural hospitals, the vast majority are private, not-for-profit, mm -hmm. but there is a large cohort, almost a third of rural hospitals are public. They are district hospitals, municipal, county, uh, have a taxing authority. And those hospitals are the least likely to be, to be merged or acquired or affiliated in a formal way. And a lot of it has to do with the governance structures, the taxing authority, and a lot of the complications around board representation that health systems really don't want to get involved with. So we've seen this sort of plateau around 51% of rural hospitals that are, that are part of health systems in, in a formal way. So where rural hospitals make up for this is by networking uh, informally on their own. And if you look uh, at how there's, there's organizations that actually have this information. If you look at how rural hospitals network, you'll find um, dozens of net, rural, hospitals, rural hospital networks of anywhere from five to 20 rural hospitals that are sharing information, um, using building economies of scale, bouncing ideas and, and advancing their thoughts and their services through these informal networks. And I think 
you know, what we're saying is that you can't go it alone. One way or another, you cannot go it alone. And rural hospitals have been very resourceful in this area, as they have in most others, to find the way that best suits their needs and the needs of their communities. Now, something that we've been keeping close attention to with the Virginia Rural Health Association, the National Health Association, is hospital closures. What are you doing to help rural hospitals address whatever needs to stay afloat? In 2019, we published a report on rural hospital closures where we outlined our strategy of action to represent and advocate on behalf of rural hospitals, as well as the the advocacy and policy solutions that would address the, the need for action at its most fundamental level. And it talks about workforce, it talks about payment, it talks about demographics and bypass. It speaks to uh, access of specialty care, uh, the access of primary care, the disparities in, in care and outcomes for rural areas. And it, it really is a, uh, a strong policy document that addresses rural hospital closures. Uh, of course, it, it is a continuous concern. I think that perhaps some of the biggest uh, impact that we have was during the national public health emergency when we were able to work with Congress to acquire upwards to $11 billion of funding to support rural hospitals during the national public health emergency, keeping them viable during that, uh, 2020 and 2021 in particular, and keeping the, the closure rate down to a minimum. That was hugely effective. Of course, now that is unwinding and we're staring at the next, I think, wave of closures, which is very concerning because all the aspects and, and, and things that were being predicted during the public health emergency are starting to come to fruition. And of course, what we all are hoping for is some new model of payment and delivery that will provide rural communities with a medical presence that will allow them to continue to be economic engines. And there are a couple of examples of that, the chart model that was being proposed by CMMI, but has since collapsed of its, um, of its own weight, didn't happen. And that was looking more at global budgets and using global budgets as a, as a mechanism under which you could pay rural hospitals. Um, there are uh, other value-based payment approaches that are successful in working with rural hospitals, such as the uh, advanced payment model ACOs um, have been effective. And now, most recently, we have the Rural Emergency Hospital. And there are five hospitals that have converted from inpatient acute to rural emergency hospitals. And we're working with and tracking them closely to see how the experience goes for them and how that model can be enhanced in order to make it, um, I, I think, more attractive to others who might consider it going forward. And before you, we segue to the next question, I want to point out a, a fact that um, folks often forget, and that is when critical access hospitals were first met, uh, allowed under law back in um, 
the Balanced Budget Act of 1998, I believe, uh, only 64 ho hospitals took advantage of that new model of payment and delivery. And that was after four years of demonstration projects through the medical assistance facilities and the each page program. Only 64 hospitals in the first year took advantage of that. Uh, I think, you know, what it says is that rural hospitals and communities are, are cautious and very discerning in terms of making these changes from one model of payment and delivery to another. And I think that's what we're going to experience with rural emergency hospitals as well, particularly if we can improve and tweak the current uh, structure for REHs so that it's a little bit more um, a little bit more practical for the purposes of the rural hospital. Sure. Just because we've had one rural hospital model forever doesn't mean we have to be lockstep that way in the future. We always have to look at different ideas, different payment models, different service models, and continue to make improvements and make sure that our rural citizens can be served. Yeah, change comes hard, and we, we understand that and we respect that. And it, what that suggests is that it takes a lot of education and information in order to make folks aware of the opportunities that are in front of them and to help them decide if it's one that best fits their need. Something else we're very concerned about, in addition to hospital closures, is that many of our rural hospitals have certain service lines that they just stop providing in order to be able to stay financially solvent, in particular maternal health. You know, when I give presentations about rural health issues, People are shocked to learn that many of our rural facilities don't have labor and delivery services. Is AHA doing anything about that to help hospitals figure out how to effectively financially manage that type of facility or that type of service? Well, yes, AHA is doing a great deal about that. And I think what we need to do first is set the baseline for just how serious this problem is in rural America. Um, the, the significance of Obi deserts across the U.S. Uh, have really changed the pattern of care for expectant mothers and their newborns. And so we have to look at ways that we can make this service accessible to those in rural areas, particularly during seasons where it's difficult to travel or where there is mountainous terrain or there's other obstacles that would keep a mother from delivering safely in a, in a hospital. And the ways in which we can best approach that is first is to identify the cause. And the cause for many of these closures is the inability to, to uh, recruit the clinical staff with the qualities to be able to provide the level of care necessary in a hospital setting. A lot of that has to do with the number of deliveries. You know, the rule of thumb is a minimum of 250 deliveries a year to have a safe environment for uh, obstetrics. And there are just not that many communities these days, in, particularly in rural areas, that have that volume of OB service. 
So then you have to look to then how you might be able to coordinate centers of excellence or regional centers of delivery. And we've worked with the hospitals who have done that successfully. St. Anthony's in Carroll, Iowa is an example of that. Um, they've gotten funding from the state of Iowa. They've gotten funding from federal government to be able to, to organize a regional center of excellence for delivery in West Central Iowa, which works. Um, it also is a center for education so and training so that uh, clinicians can be brought up to speed on the most current techniques in order to make sure a delivery is safe. And then also in terms of prenatal, uh, perinatal and postpartum care, so that the moms have this, the the services that they need in order to be to be um, to, to get instruction and in prenatal care uh, and to be there in postnatal care to provide them with a safe environment so that the delivery is safe but so they so are they once they uh, have the baby so you know there are ways in which um, we are working with our members to uh, if not improve Increase the number of clinicians that can provide OB services to certainly increase the accessibility of prenatal and postnatal care uh, through telehealth or other mechanisms. If someone in a small town was worried about their local hospital staying open, what could they do? I think if somebody in a small town is worried about their local hospital staying open, First thing they can do is use their local hospital, um, get to know the providers, use the primary care clinicians that are there, look at the ancillary services and, and, and support your local hospital. Uh, the, the reason rural hospitals close is for lack of volume. And if we are traveling to the next town over in order to receive our care, that comes at the expense of the local hospital in our community. So first and foremost, support your local hospital. I think the um, leadership of local hospitals, the boards, senior executives, and physician leaders, clinical leaders, need to be able to communicate among themselves and with the community on a regular basis so that there is an awareness of what services are being provided and the how accessible they are and what needs to be done if anything to make them more accessible um, that's i think a local issue that really speaks to communication and in some respects can be addressed through community health needs assessments so for those hospitals that really invest in that community health need assessment you'll learn a lot more about what it is that your community needs and wants and then how you can design your services to meet those needs. Yes, we've got a couple hospitals in Virginia coming up on needs assessments. And I tell people, when the hospital sends out invitations for a public forum, go. You know, absolutely, Beth. I, you know, we see that in any of a number of voluntary activities where an organization is developing a strategic plan and they're looking to the community for input. And they're, you know, these organizations are sincere. You know, we can't 
build services in a vacuum. We need the input from the community, and it's best if it's directly from the users. So absolutely, everybody should be taking advantage of these, not just because they use the service, but because it's their civic duty. Absolutely. A hospital is not an island in and of itself. It supports so many other activities in your community, whether that's through the tax base and supporting the local schools or connections to other employers. So what are the current advocacy priorities within AHA? Well, we have, of course, updated our advocacy agenda for rural hospitals for this new Congress, and we have five planks in our platform for our advocacy agenda that include supporting flexible payment options, ensuring fair and adequate reimbursement, bolstering the workforce, supporting telehealth coverage, and the fifth is protecting the 340B program, which is often the margin by which some critical access hospitals operate. And what we can report is to date, since the first of the year, since this new Congress has come into session, but there have been several bills that have been introduced in Congress to it that are consistent and aligned with our advocacy agenda, such as protecting the Rural Telehealth Access Act, the Keep Telehealth Options Act, the Critical Access Hospital Relief Act, the Conrad Strait 30 and Physician Access Reauthorization Act, Rural Hospital Support Act, the Rural American Health Corps Act, and Restoring America's Healthcare Workforce and Readiness Act. And not yet introduced, but something that we're looking at specifically for critical access hospitals is urging Congress to reopen the necessary provider provision to allow existing rural hospitals to convert to critical access based upon uh, designation as an essential provider by their state Department of Health, as well as advocating for Congress to pass legislation to permanently remove the 96-hour physician certification requirement for critical access hospitals. So these are the things that are, are happening immediately and have happened since uh, the beginning of this Congress, and we feel in many respects we've made some really good headway. How does AHA engage elected officials and their staff about the need to support rural hospitals? Well, we have a very strong team of lobbyists uh, who work with the leaders in Congress on committees of jurisdiction. There's lobbyists dedicated to rural hospital services. We also have uh, uh, policy analysts dedicated to rural health care, and they work with the agencies in terms of the development of the uh, rules that will, uh, that will be used to enforce the legislation. So we, we have a very strong um, lobby in Washington, D.C., and then it's supported by our policy folks in rulemaking with the agencies. With all we see in the media about partisan politics, does advocacy make a difference? Well, advocacy makes a huge difference, and it's it's um, advocacy for the community that that resonates with legislators. Um, it's it's not it's not your um, party of choice that resonates with them. It's it's what it is that you do on behalf of the community that requires federal or state support. So if a rural community hospital is looking to um, provide the care to keep the residents of the community well, 
and to maintain its position as an economic engine, the, the stories in which the leadership board, uh, hospital clinicians can explain to legislators uh, what works and what doesn't on their behalf is really what influences the decisions that are being made on Capitol Hill. And that's the state or, or, or federal capital. So it's the stories we bring. It's data, yes, but it's it's more compelling when we can put a face on the experience and help our our public policymakers understand what decisions work and what decisions will compromise the ability for a hospital to care for the community that resides in their district. Sure, because it's you know powerful to be able to say you know X percentage of women have to leave their rural communities to give birth, but it's also something to say, hey, this person in your district wound up going to labor at the side of road in an ambulance because she couldn't get there in time. Those are two very different ways to tell the story, but they both mean a lot. Yeah, it, 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 um, it, it, there's endless anecdotes in terms of, especially when you talk about emergency services and the proximity of uh, the hospital to an emergency and the ability to transport the individual from home or work or an accident site to an inpatient acute hospital where they can receive adequate care. The stories are endless and they, those are the ones that really get the attention of policymakers. Yeah, it's important to be able to support that with data, um, but it becomes secondary when you put a face to an experience. So the last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I think the thing that needs to be done to improve health and health care in rural America um, starts from the bottom up. And in the sense that we need to look at community health and population health as the highest priority not episodic health care. Uh, we need to dedicate more resources to public and community health. We need to find a way to collaborate between, uh, you know, inpatient and outpatient providers of care, episodic care, and those that are working towards the greater good of the community so that we can begin to address a lot of the health challenges that confront those that live in rural America. Um, we all know the data in terms of the incidence and prevalence of chronic disease figures in uh, rural America, and, and the reasons behind that often have to do with life choices or accessibility to primary care and, and interventional care. So I think if we really want to make inroads in terms of the health of our rural communities, we start with the population, we start with our community, we start with our neighbors, and we begin to inform one another and reinforce healthy behaviors and healthy practices. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's John Sublett encouraging us to address rural hospital issues at the community level. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, plan on attending the Rural Health Voice Conference in November. 
we will hear from Carrie Cochran McLean of the National Rural Health Association about what's going on in Washington, D.C. For details and registration, visit vrha.org and click the events tab.